Hello and welcome to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discuss everything healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife and spouse, Janet. And she will actually, we have the great privilege today of actually having Janet do most of the talking today. So I'm excited about that. Um, on the line, on the phone lines, uh, we have Dr. Becky Lynn from Evora um, Health, and she, we will be talking about female sexual health today. Dr. Lynn, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you for being on. I'm really excited for the show, and I will go ahead and let Janet take over and start start the questions, okay? Sure. All right. Awesome. So, Dr. Lynn, I am so excited to have you with us today, and um, this is a subject that's dear to our hearts since uh, Sean and I have focused on wellness in our pharmacy. So, could you just share with us your story and and how it evolved with your healthcare and your practice. Sure. So um, I'm the director of the Evora Center for Menopause and Sexual Health, and um, and it sort of I ended up well I I trained as an OBGYN um, and I took an interest in sexual medicine and menopause because I felt like it was sort of an, an unmet need especially the sexual part, and there's, you know, several sexual problems that go along with menopause. Women don't know who to talk to, who to ask about it. They think there's nothing that can be done. And I found that there's plenty of things to do to, um, you know, sort of bring your sex life back on track, take care of menopausal symptoms, which are numerous. So it almost fell into my lap, and I really enjoy doing women's health in general um, and focusing on wellness in general. Um, there are a lot of menopausal changes, so um, I have a, a whole plan designed for menopausal women, not just hot flashes and low libido, but exercise, nutrition, and prevention. That sounds wonderful. And so um, when you first started out, you're practicing, were you delivering or were you focused still in the menopausal Women. No. So uh, when I first started out, I did everything. I was general OBGYN. I did hysterectomies. I did uh, labor and delivery. I did a little bit of everything. And I found myself really being more interested in sexual medicine and menopause, especially as I, as I got older. Um, you know, I kind of grew with my patient population. Um, and I'm the kind of person who likes to be an expert in, like, one particular area. That's mm-hmm. just the way that I work. So I just wanted to know everything. I wanted to learn everything. I'm a, a North American Menopause Society certified provider. I'm a fellow of the International Society for the Study of uh, Women's Sexual Health, and I'm just, like, I'm a lifelong learner. So I love to be focused and specialized and really know everything I need to know. That sounds great. So just give me an idea of the typical woman that you see come through your door um, that's presented with the painful, uncomfortable sexual experiences. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I see a lot of women with painful sex, and it could be, you know, women in their 20s up to women in their 80s. But I would say the most common thing that I see as far as painful sex is painful sex due to vaginal dryness, which is due to lack of hormones, which is due to menopause. That is really, really, really common. And, you know, women are not always aware that that is a sign or a symptom of menopause because 
painful sex and vaginal dryness tends to show up about five years after the last menstrual period, as opposed to around the time that your periods go away, that you're having hot flashes, night sweats. I mean, most women know that hot flashes and night sweats are due to menopause, but that painful sex comes about five years later. And so women are like, what's wrong with me? And they feel bad, and their partner says, you know, why don't you lubricate anymore? And, you know, do you not love me anymore? What's going mm-hmm. on? And women don't know. So I, I feel like we need to do a better job at educating women about what's normal throughout the menopausal transition and into the menopausal years. That sounds very common, in fact. And we could tell many stories about um, women in our own practice that... Um, they don't know or they are uncomfortable asking their questions to their providers. Yeah. So what leads them to you? Is it because they failed with their primary doctors or, or what, what's the draw? Is it for you? Um, well, sometimes it's because they failed. Other times they get referred to me by okay. their primary physicians um, because most OBGYNs are not trained in menopause and sexual health. When you think of the residency program, it's really focused on labor and delivery and Mm -hmm. gynecologic surgery, which makes sense because you can't go be a doctor and not know how to operate or deliver a baby or handle um, a high-risk OB situation. But you can learn sexual medicine and menopause on the fly. Um, So really, it it takes, it's a little bit of a backseat, which is a shame because think of how how many women are in menopause? I think it's 64 million or some huge number. Women live so much longer, they might spend 50% of their life in menopause. Right. Yet it really takes sort of a backseat to the baby birthing thing and hysterectomy, GYN surgeries, things like that. Um, so they get to me in a variety of ways. I also um, I give talks throughout the community um, so people know about my specialty. And so sometimes they just find me on the Internet or hear it from friends or, you know, there's a variety of ways they find me. So one thing that we've noticed in our practice is um, a lot of times these women, when they do talk to their primary providers, they're given lidocaine. And what is your thoughts about that? That's not the answer. So... So the reason, I'm going to back up to the reason that women have painful sex and vaginal dryness is because when the estrogen goes away, when your ovaries aren't making estrogen anymore, the vaginal tissue changes. Instead of being thick and moist and stretchy, it becomes thin and dry and inelastic. It doesn't stretch, and that's why sex hurts. So if you give a woman her hormones back, you can completely fix the problem. And there's many, there's several types of low-dose vaginal hormones that you can put in the vagina that just, that way your body doesn't know that you're through the menopause. Your body and your vagina think you're 21. But um, so really the, the, the treatment is to just replace what you're missing. And I think that our, our, my gut feeling is that the lidocaine gets thrown out there first or people say coconut oil or certain lubricants, mm-hmm. Crisco, things like that, um, because everybody's afraid of hormones. And it's really important for, for me to tell my patients that low-dose vaginal hormones do not increase your risk for breast cancer, blood clots, heart attacks, or stroke. And some say, yes, uh-huh, right, like that. Um, yeah. So sometimes women come in and say, I, I don't want hormones. And so I always ask why. 
Why don't you want hormones? Oh, my mom had breast cancer. So I can say that, you know, vaginal hormones are not going to cause you breast cancer. So I think that it's, it's that, that fear of hormones that prevents women from getting the right treatment and that fear of hormones that prevents providers from giving the right treatment. And our outlook on hormones has really changed since the Women's Health Initiative, which was the big study in the early 2000s that scared everybody on their hormones. Um, and they've looked at that data and continued to collect data. And the recommendations from the North American Menopause Society about hormone use in women has changed. But we're all stuck in that hormones are bad, hormones are bad era. And that's not the case in the right person. Right. And may I just add to that, a lot of those studies were based off of Primarin and Provera. So there right. are options and hormones that are um, lower doses and closer to what your body and ovaries would be making um, versus something that came from a pregnant mare. So there exactly. are better options. that. Um, so those studies, um, I agree, they, they were flawed in many ways. And as we have more time to reevaluate and look at um, better options, I think that does change the parameter. And I know we're talking about the physical part, but what happens to the, the psychological and mental part for partners in, in this time frame? Because I think it's two-sided, isn't it? So do you mean in the menopausal time or do you mean sexual I'm, problems? I think sexual problems is, I mean, it's going to probably yeah. go across the board, but... Absolutely. So there, so a little, what we might consider a small sexual problem becomes a big relationship problem. It's huge. And even in the best of relationships, that sexual problem can throw a wrench in their sex life, in their communication. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard for people to talk about. And it really, it, it can really become a big deal. And the other thing to think about um, when we're talking about partners is that as we age, so if you live long enough as a woman, you're going to have vaginal dryness. And if you live long enough as a man, you're going to develop erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So some of these sexual problems, not only is the woman having issues, but the man may be having issues too. So I've seen couples who haven't had sex in years because it just becomes so painful and stressful, and he doesn't want to hurt her. He's worried that he won't be able to maintain the erection. I mean, it's, it's, but the good news about all that is these issues are easily treatable, and you can restore that happy sex life. And the thing is, you know, if you have a good sex life, it contributes about 10 to 15% to a good relationship. But if you have a bad sex life, it contributes 50 to 70% of the relationship. Mm -hmm. So what may seem like a small problem really is a, a pretty big problem. Right. And if you consider the fact that when a woman is starting to go through hormonal changes, or a man for that matter, there's a lot of things that they're already dealing with on their plate. So add that yep. on top of it, certainly mm -hmm. that is an option. So how do you approach that in your practice when you have couples in this situation? Um, well, I'm also a certified sexual counselor, so I do a lot of discussion about the relationship. Are your emotional needs being met? I'll see a woman alone or um, with her partner. Um, sometimes it's a couple visits just to get to um, the bottom of the relationship issue. And, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because a couple may not have had any, or 
everybody has a little bit of relationship issues. There's no perfect relationship. Right. But they may not have had a big problem, and then the sexual problem becomes a relationship mm-hmm. problem, and then everything sort of, you know, domino effects from there. Um, so I do spend a lot of time discussing the relationship. Um, if there's coexistent depression or anxiety in the woman, then, you know, well, first off, I always recommend exercise. It's the best thing for mood. But if she does need to get yes. exercise, you see, it's the best thing for everything, for your brain, for your heart, prevent diabetes. It helps with libido also. It's been studied in both men and women. Exercise does. Um, but I might refer a woman to a psychiatrist if I think, um, you know, the issue is there. I, I think many times dealing with sexual problems is multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. So, you know, although I do the counseling, I handle the hormones, um, you know, or other medicines. There are non-hormonal things you can use for sexual problems in menopausal women. Um, but really, if there's other coexistent issues, if their thyroid is low, if they have cancer, if they are, mm-hmm. have depression, then a lot of times... I'll refer to other providers because in order to really get them where they want to be, to get the couple where they want to be, you have to fix all the contributors to the issue. Right. So it's multidiscipline. Yes. So um, this is really close to a break, so I'm going to lead into uh, lower libido when we come back. but I, I feel like maybe for my listeners that one of the first steps they could take is to have a conversation with their partner and then their provider. Would, okay. would that be your advice? I think that is excellent advice. I would also say if you don't get the answer from the provider that you are looking for, to go to the IFWISH organization, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, to find a provider that is trained in sexual issues. All right. We will actually put that in the show notes too, Dr. Lynn, so our listeners and viewers can can, um, check that out. So you have been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. We're ready to go to our first commercial break. Um, Please tune in. Um, Be part of the show, 509-765-1470. Call with questions for Dr. Lynn. Also, streaming live on my personal Facebook, Sean Needham's Facebook, and the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy YouTube. Go check them out, and we will see you in a few minutes. Hello, and welcome back to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. We are streaming live at AM 1470, the KBSN studio in the wonderful, beautiful town of Moses Lake. And you can also catch us on podcast forums, so your favorite podcast forums, SoundCloud, I, iTunes, um, uh, uh, Spotify. Spotify, I couldn't think of it. So all the, all the podcast forums, so, so please, Google Podcast too, so please check those out. We archive these on the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy YouTube channel and those podcast forums, so stay tuned for those also. Um, Dr. Becky Lynn, um, welcome back to the show. If you missed our first um, our first segment, we are talking about female sexual health, and, and my wonderful wife, Janet, and Dr. Becky Lynn are, are in a conversation about it. So, Dr. Becky Lynn, welcome back. Thank you. So, we're going to lead into the next topic of um, maybe some things that um, we can note about what causes there can be for low libido issues. Mm-hmm. So, there are many, 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 and, I, and libido is very complex. It would be rare to have just one issue that contributes to low libido. So many things contribute. So um, first of all, long-term relationships. 
um, you know, the first 18 months or the honeymoon phase, your libido's great, your, your partner mm-hmm. can do no wrong. But then 20 years later, you know, it's not kind of that same excitement that you have in the honeymoon phase. Right. Um, hormones go down. Um, testosterone is one of the main drivers of libido. And in women, testosterone starts to go down in your late 20s. So, you know, we talk about low libido, low desire, but sometimes it's the desire discrepancy because men are here, women are here, and then over time as that testosterone goes down, there's just that difference. Um, Things like body image can play a role in libido, Um, especially around the time of menopause. Women tend to gain weight or after babies. They gain weight, they don't feel sexy, they don't feel good about their bodies, and if you don't feel good about it, you're not going to want to share. Coexisting medical conditions, cancer, especially breast cancer, Um, you know, one of the ways that we treat estrogen receptor positive breast cancer is by throwing women into menopause, Mm -hmm. taking their ovaries out or putting them on medicines that block estrogen. That can definitely contribute to low libido, depression, anxiety, history of sexual trauma, even just what your family taught you about sex. You know, our society makes it shameful. Um, So people feel guilty, um, you know, that they should like it or, you know, there's just there's so many things that play a role and relationship issues definitely play a role. So the hot topic now with um, marijuana being um, legalized in many states, what is your view on that subject? So um, that is what my research is in. Um, uh, Yeah, so um, what I found, I'll tell you how I started in that field. Um, So basically, I live in Missouri, in St. Louis, where marijuana is, now now medical marijuana is legal. Sorry for the phone ringing in the background. Um, But I found that my patients with sexual problems would come to me and say, you know, my libido is great when I smoke marijuana, or I'm able to reach orgasm now with marijuana. And so I wondered to myself a couple years ago, is there any medical data, scientific evidence that this is true? I didn't know. So I went to the medical literature, peer-reviewed scientific journals, not much at all, very little. There's like 13 uh, human studies, eight rat studies, I believe, that are good, you know, good scientific evidence, not even good, okay scientific evidence. Um, and the rat studies, you know, they give marijuana, they give other cannabinoids, but the human studies, you can't do that. So they're right. all like questionnaire-based, which is just biased in and of itself. It's all recall. Um, so we decided to do a study asking women what, um, what they thought, um, how, they, how marijuana affected the sexual experience. We did this at St. Louis University. Um, and we found that the majority of women um, reported higher sex drive, a better overall experience, um, a better orgasm, and uh, less pain and not so much change in lubrication. Um, so now then you might ask, well, do I tell my patients to go use right. it? No, I don't do that because, well, first of all, we don't have any long-term data on its effects. And you can't just go, I mean, if you want to try it, like you can't just go out and, you know, there's ways to go about, like, testing it first, um, maybe test it by yourself. People get paranoid. Right. You can certainly use too much. Um, and, and they have found, even in human and animal studies, that 
a little bit might be good, and too much is not good at all. Because if you can't move, it's not going to help you in any way. So our current research is looking at, that initial study was looking at anybody who walked through the doors of our OBGYN office. The current research that we're doing is looking at just women with diagnosed sexual dysfunction to see if they're using it, which dysfunctions are using it, and what do they think about it. So that research hasn't been published yet or presented. So it's interesting. That is. So I guess this leads me into the next question. Quite often um, we talk to our patients about the use of alcoholism or drinking, actually, not yeah. even alcoholism, but right. what effect that can have, especially on men, but does that have mm -hmm. effect on women too as far as decreasing libido or increasing? Right. So alcohol is very similar in that a little bit might help because it lowers your inhibition. It takes out that anxiety about is everything going to work right or should I be doing this? Um, but too much is not good. Um, it does make it more difficult to reach orgasm. And obviously if you're squashed and, you know, that's not a safe situation in many respects. Um, so a little bit can help some, but too much is, is a no. And women too. Right. And so, and we also know that being from the pharmacy background, there are medications that are prescribed that patients will be taking that can decrease libido too. Would you like yes. to speak to that? Yes. So the most common ones are the SSRIs. So this is the group of medicines that we know as Paxil, Prozac, Celexa, Lexapro, Zoloft. Mm -hmm. um, that group of medicines can definitely decrease libido and also make it more difficult to reach orgasm. And I feel like women aren't always told that. No. Because when women come in, they'll come to see me and they'll be having trouble with orgasm or they've lost their libido. And when I tell them, oh, well, you know, you're on Prozac and that, that can do that, mm -hmm. they're like, what? Nobody told me. And I feel like men are more likely to get told about the sexual side effects. But it can be just as important to women to know about those sexual sure. side effects. Because if you didn't know that and all of a sudden you're having difficulties, you're just freaking you know, you're like, what's wrong with me? Right. You feel broken. Very true. So I know this isn't the same as medication, but one of the things we have teenagers, and so we're constantly talking to them about making sure you have enough rest. And mm -hmm. that plays into a lot of different healthcare. Uh, issues, but what about in the situation we're talking about is sexual health? What does rest have to do with that? Um, well, the first thing that came to mind, uh, this is sort of, sort of has to do with rest, um, but maybe not what you were asking, is many couples, busy couples, you have kids, um, you know, they're working all day, taking care of the kids all night, getting to bed at 11 o'clock at night, and Many women are like, oh, the last thing I feel like doing mm -hmm. is having sex. They're exhausted. Right. That's the lowest on, the, on their mind. So I do recommend to my patients um, to schedule sex, make it a priority. That's part of nurturing your relationship. Um, and so maybe a Saturday morning when you are well-rested or a Sunday afternoon, get a babysitter, take your kids to grandma's, whatever you need to do when you're not exhausted because... When you're exhausted, you physically don't really feel like doing anything. That's so true. Coming from a mother and working, you do. Yes. You feel like one more touch is, you know, there's a limit, yep. right? <laughs> so. Right, right. You can only do so much as a mom and a working mom. 
So now that leads me into, um, of course, we have the women that have went into menopause because of surgery, but um, the women that we're talking about is just kind of a natural progression with our age. So what, mm -hmm. what, what are the things that we can do to improve our quality? Because I think that's okay. what it's all about, that we want people to have solutions about the quality of, of their life they're living. Mm -hmm. So I think it goes back to all of the things that we talked about, managing hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, low libido, cognitive decline, staying healthy, eating right, and exercising. Um, you know, when you have symptoms like hot flashes, um, you can treat them. So I'll talk a little bit about that big study, the Women's Health Initiative in the early 2000s that made everybody scared half to death and stopped their hormones. And you're right that the only hormone that was studied in that study was Prem-Pro. Right. Premarin and Provera. That's it. And there's a, a whole bunch of other different ways you can utilize hormones. So at that time, women heard, and the media was all over it, uh, increased risk for blood clot, heart attack, breast cancer, and stroke. Right. Over 20 years, or, well, not quite 20 years, almost 20 years, um, we have found that if you start hormones within... 10 years of your last menstrual period or before the age of 59, they actually decrease your risk of heart disease. Right. And they do not increase your risk of stroke in that age range, and they decrease your overall mortality. So when we're thinking about, you know, prevention and how do we stay healthy, if you're somebody, this is my personal opinion, if you're somebody who everybody dies at 40 from a heart attack, Maybe you want to consider using hormones. You certainly don't have to. Um, but, you know, I feel like we miss, because of that study, we miss a whole generation of women that could have benefited from being on hormones within the 10 years since their last menstrual period. Because we also know that if you start it beyond that, you start estrogen later, then it does increase your risk of heart attack because you can have a plaque, a coronary artery disease plaque in your vessels, and if you start estrogen later, it can disrupt that plaque and cause a heart attack or stroke. But if you start estrogen when you don't have plaques, it can help prevent those plaques from forming. So, um, you know, that's something to consider. When you think of breast cancer, my opinion is that um, I, I never use Prempro. I rarely, rarely ever use Prempro, which is what they studied. Um, I choose the, um, the bioidentical, which just means that it has the same chemical structure as your own ovaries make. Right. And they're a prescription bioidentical. You don't have to get it compounded. Um, I like the prescriptions. They've been studied for safety and efficacy. We know that they have enough progesterone in them to prevent uterine cancer, but you, you can use bioidenticals, and, and they're different. So um, the most common... Um, bioidentical progesterone out there is prometrium, and there is a meta-analysis that showed that it did not increase the risk of breast cancer over five years and possibly seven. Um, so if a patient decides to use hormones, then I will generally go with prometrium, or there's another product called Bijuva that is bioidentical estrogen, which is estradiol, plus a micronized progesterone, which is bioidentical progesterone. Um, and because of, I'm, I'm just so much less concerned about breast cancer with the Bijuva or with the Prometrium, which is a micronized progesterone. And Bijuva also, in their studies, was shown to not affect clotting factors because we know that estrogen can, 
can make your blood clot more easily. Right. It can cause a CVT, a deep vein thrombosis, or a pulmonary embolus, and those are bad. Well, progesterone doesn't cause them, so that's that's nope. that's a good good um, subject to to cover. Um, yep. And I know we talked about a little bit about the brain, but um, I've been hearing more and more about the protective part of what estrogen plays to our brain. Do you want to speak to that right. a little bit? Yeah. So I think the the going thought is that estrogen can help with that short-term memory loss, cognitive decline within those first 10 years. Now, if you read the package insert of estrogen, because of the WHI, it says can cause dementia. Right. But when you think about the WHI, the age range of women in that study, like the oldest woman was 79. So, yeah, when you're 79 and you have underlying dementia, maybe estrogen can worsen that. But I think there is a little bit of a protective effect when started early. Right, right. So women just feel better on it. Their joints ache less. I mean, it has Mm -hmm. so many benefits. Right. And we touched a little bit on... um, on libido and painful sex when we were mm-hmm. talking about using vaginal products. But when we get into mm-hmm. menopause, that um, can also be beneficial for urinary and bladder issues, correct? Oh, absolutely. That's a really good point. I think that's so important because that lack of estrogen increases the chance that a woman's going to get a bladder infection. It can make leaking urine worse, like some women will leak with cough and sneeze. Or they'll have that urgency, like they feel like they have to find a bathroom or they're going to leak. Um, and estrogen, like a vaginal estrogen and even a systemic estrogen can help with that immensely, especially in women who have recurrent UTIs. So a woman who's not on estrogen, keeps getting a bladder infection, keeps getting antibiotics, eventually the bacteria becomes resistant to the antibiotics. And if you would just give her some vaginal estrogen, which is very low risk, you can stop that from happening and prevent those recurrent bladder infections. It works wonders for the urinary tract. That being said, I'm, I'm very passionate about this with my clients because I do see my elderly women more at risk because they don't have the feeling, the sensation of having an infection. So mm-hmm. when they get one, sometimes it can be very bad. And if they have other... Yeah. You know, disease states along with it, it can add to that. And and I have known many women that have been hospitalized in their elderly age because of that. So it becomes really uh, important to address at any age. And so one of the questions I get is, well, if I use that product, am I at risk for breast cancer or am I at risk for, you know, the harmful? So what do you want to speak to that question? No. So all of the... um Vaginal products, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a variety of different ways you can use vaginal estrogens or vaginal DHEA. None of those increase the risk for breast cancer. They just don't. Such a pleasure to speak to you today, Dr. Lynn. So I'm sure that you have more to share with us, but what are your, what are your parting words that you would have, and, and how can uh, people get in touch with you or tap into the knowledge that you have to give them the tools to find the right providers? Sure. Um, so I guess the parting message is definitely find a provider who knows about these issues. Um, like I mentioned, ISWISH, I-S-S-W-S-H, you can find a provider who's well-trained in sexual medicine. NAMS, the North American Menopause Society, has um, a list for patients and a whole bunch of good resources about menopause, 
in general because we just don't get enough education. Um, I am easy to find. I'm all over social media. Um, at Becky K. Lynn MD is my Facebook and my Instagram handle. You can also look, um, go to at Evora Center for Menopause and Sex Health. That's our Facebook page. And my website page is Evora, E-V-O-R-A, by drbeckylynn.com. Um, um, I offer telehealth to people in Missouri. I offer e-health to people anywhere where I can just discuss situations. I can't be your doctor, um, but I can talk about what I know just like I did on um, this uh, radio show. So look for me. If you need me, I'm here. All right, Dr. Lynn, thank you for being on our show. And we will have links to our show notes in there. Be, be, uh, be looking for our, our YouTube, our ended YouTube version. Um, maybe tomorrow or the next day on Mosley Lake Professional Farms YouTube. And you've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you so much, Dr. Lynn. Thank you. Mm-hmm.